I'm actually about to quit this podcast and make one in Turkey. Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where we shouldn't have to go overseas in order to make a living. I'm Jordan Liggins, and today we are joined by our contributor, a wonderful journalist, and a friend of Spinsters, Natalie Weiner. Natalie, what story do you have for us today? Today, what I'm hoping to talk about is a thing that I think we all sort of take for granted, you know, watching mm-hmm. the WNBA. Basically, just the fact that all of the players play overseas, you know, in addition yes. to their commitments with the WNBA. So a lot has changed over the WNBA's 25 seasons, but one league-defining reality has remained constant. There's just not enough money to go around. Penny Toller is one example. And the first basket in WNBA history is scored by Penny Toller. Penny Toller is best known for scoring the first basket in WNBA history. She was a point guard who had played in Israel, Greece, and Italy before joining the W for its inaugural season. As a longtime professional, she had a single plea for the league's commissioner at the conclusion of the first WNBA season. If I could ask Val Ackerman to do one thing, she said, it would be to raise the salaries to the point where most of us wouldn't feel like we have to go overseas anymore to play. Yet, today's WNBA players, nearly 25 years after Penny's first basket, are still compelled, with few exceptions, to play overseas every offseason if they want to maximize their potential as professional athletes. So my flight there, like I got on a plane and I probably cried for like a good 45 minutes. I was like, I'm really going over here and about to be over here for seven months. Like, this is insane. That was the Indiana Fever's Victoria Vivians talking about her first stint overseas in Israel. For players like Vivians, it's a financial consideration more than anything else. Some people make more money overseas than what they will make in a WNBA contract. In 2015, for example, one of the league's biggest stars, Diana Taurasi, Taurasi, the pull-up, is good, and the foul! opted out of the WNBA season entirely because her Russian team had offered her $1.5 million to stay there for the whole year. Her WNBA salary at the time was among the league's highest, but it was still just $107,000. But there are benefits to playing overseas. Players get to experience a new country, learn from international competition, and perhaps more importantly, stay in shape on another team's dime. The risks of playing abroad, though, have felt increasingly acute. In a league of just 144 players, health is everything. Playing overseas increases the chances of a WNBA team's worst nightmare, losing even one starter to an injury that happens overseas. It's undeniable that the grind of playing year-round makes this far more likely to happen. In the short term, the challenge is put on players. What do you have to do to play professional basketball without any breaks and stay healthy? The big picture questions, though, have less clear-cut answers. How can the WNBA, universally acknowledged as the best professional women's basketball league in the world, grow and evolve when, practically speaking, it's almost impossible for players to prioritize it? 
Year-round play has been the status quo for decades, but is it actually sustainable? To me, after seeing how many injuries WNBA starters have dealt with due to overuse and the overall toll that such a grueling schedule takes on their mental health, the answer is a clear no. The real question isn't whether year-round play is good for the players, it's whether there are any options that are both better for players and actually possible within the WNBA as it is right now. It's so wild because this is just something that W players are used to, even though they shouldn't be like playing all year round. It doesn't seem like it's sustainable or just a good idea. Like it kind of seems like a bad idea to put this many miles on your body. I just think it's interesting that now that NBA players get a slight taste of what WNBA players have been facing for years. For sure. It's an issue that hasn't gotten a ton of attention, partially because it's a little tricky to directly compare the WNBA and NBA. There's not a ton of conclusive evidence comparing their respective injury rates, for example. Mm -hmm. A 2006 study did find that WNBA players suffered injuries more frequently than their male counterparts, but that was in 2006. (laughs) It's one way in which the risks of the WNBA's less regulated workload are generally ignored, while any shift in NBA players' schedules, in their routines, are examined under a microscope. Earlier this year, a rash of NBA injuries among stars like James Harden and Mike Conley prompted outcry about the grueling COVID-19 condensed season. LeBron James was particularly vocal about how playing with so little rest, he felt that he and his peers were more vulnerable to injury. He missed 27 games during the 2020-2021 season with an ankle sprain, and fellow Laker Anthony Davis was injured during the playoffs. I always think about just from the moment we entered the bubble to now today, it's been uh, draining. Mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally draining. The data suggests those complaints are justified. According to an ESPN report published in June, 5.1 NBA players were sidelined per game, the highest number since they began tracking that in 2009. Concerns about the overall length of the NBA season and postseason have also been raised for years. For WNBA players and fans, though, those complaints sound laughable. Yes, the WNBA season is substantially shorter than the NBA season, but combined with the postseason, with what they're expected to play overseas, and the fact that neither of those seasons are regulated in such a way that they get any kind of break, it's certainly comparable. The kind of rest NBA players get, even during this past COVID-condensed season, would be a life-changing improvement for most of the WNBA's athletes. And that's without the NBA's standard chartered flights and, crucially, multi-million dollar paydays. Here's Victoria Vivians, who we heard from a minute ago. I feel like they shouldn't have beef because they get paid for it. Not saying we don't get paid for it, but they get paid, like, collect your money and do what you got to do in those 80 games. Y'all playing, at least y'all get a break. We don't get a break. We go, in order for us to make our money, we have to go play here and there. So I feel like they should be grateful. The last time the WNBA schedule made top line news was because of an injury that came during the offseason. 
In 2019, Brianna Stewart, who was the reigning WNBA MVP at that time, tore her Achilles during a EuroLeague championship game with her team Dynamo Kursk. Looks like she has turned her ankle. She landed awkwardly, and uh, that does not look good. As a result, she missed the entire 2019 WNBA season. And that's the reigning MVP. It was a major wake-up call for more casual fans, as well as for the league itself, which was in the middle of very tense CBA negotiations. One of the league's biggest stars suffered a season-ending and possibly use-related soft tissue injury because her American salary made up just a fraction of her total earning potential. I remember that news breaking with Brianna Stewart and two reactions. One, WNBA fans being just in shock that someone that was at the top of her game, is she going to play at that level again? Right. And then two, people being like, wait, why is she playing overseas? <laughs> and it was like, hello, she has to. So it was a wake up call, like you said, because on both sides of the coin, like, did we just lose as WNBA fans a future icon? Mm-hmm. And then people that were on the outside not understanding, like as if she was playing a pickup game with people in a park. Like, right. no, this is actually how she makes her money, not from the WNBA. I guess just how we talk about injuries, especially with the W and women's basketball players on large scale or small scale, it's it's not really equal and it's a little bit all yeah. over the place. Yeah, I think that there's a few problems in play like we're talking about. I mean, Brianna Stewart, obviously one of the faces of the league. So when something happens to her, we're going to hear about it. And the other thing is there are just so few roster spots in the W that unless a player is among the 10 best in the league, like Brianna, there's usually an eager replacement ready to claim her minutes. There's also the fact that the WNBA is just undercovered in general, as well as the fact that even when an injury happens overseas, it's pretty hard to automatically attribute it to overuse. You know, we don't really know exactly what's causing any given injury. So it's harder to draw that line and sort of spot a trend. In that context, it makes sense to look at injuries and the rigid discipline that players have to employ to avoid them as two symptoms of a much bigger issue. Basically, the lengths WNBA players have to go to to make a decent wage are still extraordinary. Like any professional athlete, they're aiming to earn enough that they have something to build off of in retirement. But... The physical strain of their schedule makes playing consistently at a high level much more difficult. Plus, the mental strain of being isolated in a foreign country for most of the year only compounds that. If you're wondering how this status quo of players making most of their money overseas came to be, even when the best women's basketball players in the world are still mostly from America, The answer is complicated. European professional sports are structured much differently than American ones. Regulations, unionization, 
and the degree to which teams receive state funding all make domestic and international leagues hard to compare. As far as basketball specifically, none of the countries where women go to play have a league as famous and lucrative as the NBA for men or women. For these European and Asian leagues, getting an American star or two is a lot more feasible on the women's side than the men's. And they generally don't have collective bargaining agreements that would require a minimum salary for local players. Stateside, the NBA has such a stronghold on basketball consumption that the WNBA, once it snuffed out its competition in the American Basketball League, has long had no real incentive to sweeten the deal. It's been able to attract top players at home and many from abroad off the promise of playing professional basketball against the best, in front of the best, for decades. All these and more factors combine for a situation where players feel they have no choice but to try and have it both ways if they want to make the most of their potential as professionals. Frequently, there's a high cost to that. Vivian's, for example, tore her ACL during her first season playing in Israel. She had gone directly from playing in the NCAA Finals with Mississippi State to the WNBA draft, where she was the eighth overall pick, to training camp with the Indiana Fever. There, she played the entire season from May to August, and after that, she finally had a two-week break, after which she immediately got on a plane to Tel Aviv. Six months later, she was in the playoffs overseas. And then, snap. It was just a play. It was no contact at all. So it was just, it was me. It was my body not reacting in time enough. So as soon as I jumped, I just knew something was wrong. Like, before I even landed, I screamed my trainer's name in the, like while I was in the air, and I just came down, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I actually thought my leg was broke. I thought it was just dangling. <laughs> It was the first major injury of Vivian's career. She waited to have surgery until she could get home about two weeks later. Remember, though, in women's basketball, there's no time to waste. Rehab started the day after. That's so wild. Like, one, the first thought that comes to my mind is having that type of injury so far away from friends and family, your native language, like everything that is that you're accustomed to. It just sounds scary. And like, how is she doing? How is her career after that major injury? Because it's like you said, rehab starts the day after, but you don't bounce back the next day. (laughs) No, definitely not. I mean, she missed the entire 2019 season, actually just like Brianna Stewart. And then she just went right back overseas. I got stuck in Israel. She's been through the ringer when it comes to overseas play. And she played in the Wubble in 2020. Mm -hmm. And she suffered a meniscus tear during that time. So on her surgically repaired knee. So clearly, like, there's some residual issues there, which is really unfortunate because she's pretty young, you know. And the whole situation just over the past few years dealing with all of these injuries, it's changed the entire way that she approaches the game. I'm a vegetarian now, like, I do my workouts different. I work on my whole body and not just certain parts. I don't care, like, anything I'm working on my body. So everything I do now is to stay injury-free and be able to prolong 
my legs and my, you know, my body just so I can have longevity. Vivian's isn't quite back to where she was her rookie year when she was starting for the fever at guard, but she's getting there. I think it's important to understand, too, that Vivian's was an excellent college player who had a ton of WNBA promise, hence the number eight draft spot. These injuries have had a major impact on her development. First of all, this is not fair. (laughs) (laughs) It is not fair that that has to be her story or like a footnote in her Wikipedia page. Like that's that's not fair that it had to be this way. And I also did not know that it happened the same time as Brianna Stewart's injury. And I think that just goes to show that not all players and not all players injuries are created equal. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's really interesting looking at Vivian's and players like her because Vivian's case is pretty typical of your average middle-class, quote-unquote, WNBA player. What I mean by that is that she will have a spot on a WNBA roster, but she's not among the league's highest-paid players. The 2020 CBA, which we all know is sort of widely touted as offering all these gains to WNBA players, it included league-wide raises. But only the very, very best players, as well as those who are being tapped for off-season marketing roles, for example, are now making enough to actually consider not playing overseas. And most of those top players are signing on with international teams anyway, because it's still where the money is. For Vivians and most WNBA players, not playing overseas would still mean a huge financial loss, in spite of the risks, which she's obviously already borne the brunt of. So Vivian's made a compromise. She's been only playing a half season abroad. It's not even because of the injuries. It's because I don't want to be over there the entire time. While she's abroad, Vivian's has had to be more strategic about her exertion. All players do. My first year overseas, I was just going out there doing anything, like just playing. And now it's like, all right, you play good, play well, but don't be doing too much where you get hurt because I actually want to play in the WNBA more than I want to go overseas. So I just, I don't want to say I play timid, but I play careful over there, whether than I do here. And I just lay it all out on the line. It's this kind of necessary, challenging calculation for players. Make a name for yourself overseas so that you can secure your future, in a sense without sacrificing your ability to play in the W, because the W is where the action is. It's where players have dreamed of playing since they were kids. But abroad is where the money is. It really doesn't allow much time for just living. The new CBA from 2020, it was basically designed with its overall raises, with the fact that it created off-season marketing and career development initiatives. They were all put in place to try to make being a WNBA player more sustainable as a full-time occupation. The problem is, though, particularly for players like Vivian's, it just didn't go quite far enough. Stopping overseas play, 
for players like her still isn't a possibility. The new CBA also adds the potential for punitive measures against players who miss parts of the WNBA preseason and regular season because of their overseas commitments. So it's a little bit granular, but under a section of the CBA called WNBA prioritization, it's laid out that starting in 2023, the league will actually fine players 1% of their base salary for every single day of training camp that they miss, in addition to whatever fines their team might choose to impose. If a player misses the start of the regular season, they'll be suspended for the entire season without pay. And it actually gets crazier because starting in 2024, players will be suspended for the entire season without pay if they miss any part of training camp. I did not know that that was a part of the CBA. And is that going to be for all of the players? Because if you think about the Russian team, that's like the super team of Mm -hmm. all of the WNBA stars. And if they go to the finals and the championship and there's any bit of crossover, they would be suspending all of the best players in the WNBA. So that makes me wonder, is that going to be for every player? Yeah, it's really wild. And I think it's kind of gone under the radar as we've talked about the CBA because it's it doesn't go into effect, you know, for a few years. So we're still we're not quite there yet, but it would definitely mark an enormous change in the way that the WNBA has functioned. I spoke about it actually with a longtime WNBA agent named Mike Cowand. And when he saw that particular penalty in the CBA, his first reaction was, well, I'll let him tell you himself. It's a typo. (laughs) That's my reaction. There's no way. It was probably right in front of me. I'm not saying it wasn't there. I just, I wouldn't have believed it had I, had I read it. I don't see how the WNBA wins with that clause. Count has been a WNBA agent for years, and he represents dozens of players, both American and international, including, coincidentally, Victoria Vivian's. This section of the new CBA won't be enacted for over a year, but it's top of mind for Cowand and other agents because it really fundamentally changes the way that the WNBA schedule will work. If players have to report the first day of training camp, it will severely limit their opportunities to make money overseas because for most players, especially the best ones, miss at least part of their WNBA training camp because it conflicts with the most lucrative time of year overseas, the playoffs. In 13 years, I think I've been to either four or five training camps. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) So if I was playing overseas, I'm going to be late. I'm probably not going to be here in time. That was Connecticut Sun starter Breon January, who at 34 years old is playing some of her best basketball this year. The Sun are in the playoffs, and January's success on the team is a testament to how playing year-round can work. She missed all but one day of training camp this year while playing for Hungary's Sopron Basket. And I think that's the thing, is like, even Brian January has to come late. And this new rule for the WNBA to not budge on their start of training camp or their start of their season is really, really unfair. And I think about, you know, the men's team and even in the NFL, they 
get fined, but it doesn't go to the extremes of, well, you were late to our party, so you're canceled for the rest of the season. I feel like that's not done by other leagues. For sure. And the other difference between the WNBA and those professional men's leagues is that almost none of those male players have other jobs that pay them more or demand the majority of their time. The WNBA prioritization section of the CBA exists because the league needs to stop being secondary in order to survive. It can't grow if its players prioritize playing on the other side of the world. But these new rules, at least for players and agents, read as the league asking for all take with no give. Here's January. We're moving in that direction, but still with this CBA that we have right now, what players are making doesn't compensate for what they'd be losing overseas if they were just to play in the WNBA. So we're still kind of stuck in this spot where the WNBA wants us to prioritize their league, but they're still not paying us enough to actually do that, you know, to make it make sense. In essence, it's asking for as much as the men's leagues do without offering as much in return. There are two caveats around this new rule. It doesn't apply to players in their first three seasons, and it doesn't apply to players who miss time because they're with their national teams. Its focus is pretty specific. Veteran players not making salaries in six figures. As Count explains, those kinds of journeywoman players are already feeling a pinch from this new CBA. Now the question is coming from teams when they need a player is not, hey, Mike, who's the best shooting guard you have? It's who's the best shooting guard at the rookie scale that you have? Because my cap does not allow me to sign even a veteran minimum. You have a lot of players you're not seeing in the league simply because they're at 70,200 or whatever that veteran minimum number is versus the 58, which brings another thing really, really, really important. When you have to do an injury hardship exemption, you pay the player that's coming in 75% of the minimum. That's all you can pay. And you have to replace them as soon as that injured person is back. The problem with the system is that the money you're paying that new person goes to the cap. So you have to have the cap space to replace them. So if you've used your cap and you've got three injured players, it's a real problem. There are some teams that had to get an exception to the exception just to field enough players. But they've done a great job. That offseason money, that's super that you've provided that. But a hundred grand divided to a team doesn't go far. In the W, there is still more talent than there is money, at least domestically. The potential for that balance to shift is real, though. Part of the reason for that is completely separate from the WNBA CBA. The international market for women's professional basketball has contracted, and as a result, salaries overseas have shrunk slightly. The WNBA could actually become a player's full-time job, but without further salary increases and other large-scale fixes, like an expanded season, it's just not tenable. And these new penalties don't seem likely to change that. I just don't think it needs to be so punitive. Let the teams decide, because we've already got that system in place. The teams can decide whether you make the team or not. If they want to invest in your contract and you arrive late, maybe you put a mandatory fine that's really punitive, but suspension? Who is that helping? Does that help the fans, the team, the player, the league? 
I don't really know who that helps. I guess my question is, you know, zooming out, Mm -hmm. big picture. If you're a WNBA player, do you kind of have to have it in your mind that you have to play overseas forever in order to make ends meet, to make your career profitable? Is that kind of the assumption? It's hard to say. Players have been playing abroad longer than they've been playing here. And the structural changes required of the W in order to make it more appealing and more lucrative than international leagues are, surprise, the same ones fans keep demanding. More teams, a longer season, and just more investment, period. All of these things are obviously connected. Players play better when they're not worried about preserving their bodies, when they have time to rest and recover mentally and physically. Here's January. And the sad part is, like, it does affect our product. Imagine if we had an offseason where we could properly rest our bodies, work on our game. When you're constantly playing games, like, yeah, you get to work on things, but you're not able to really do that individual skill work consistently to work on the things you need to improve upon. Like, it's really hard to do that within the middle of a season, and we're constantly in a season. So, like, the level of play, you would see the results in the level of play if we could, you know, have that time. Not having enough room in the league for skilled veterans stifles the league's long-term development. Unsurprisingly, this story about how players have adapted to deal with a super high-risk job, how they've designed their entire lives in order to be able to safely do almost nothing besides play basketball, because that's the only way that they can make a living doing it, is really about how the conditions they work under are symptoms of the chronic underinvestment in women's sports and how its athletes cope with physical and mental strain as a result. I have a lot of folks who would like that should be in the league, could be in the league if if there was a few more spots. Lots of talent out there. You could open another four teams and not dilute it too much the way our talent's coming out. You know, the thing is college basketball Grassroots girls basketball is really, really high level now. And so that's what gives me hope that this will eventually, you know, stand alone. We put a whole lot into this game and like, you have to love it to do what we do year in and year out. You know, you're you're away from your family six months. I get to see my parents twice a year, maybe three times a year if they come overseas, Four, actually four times. If they come during the WNBA season, they'll catch me on the road, but that's for a couple of days. And so it's like, you miss a lot of moments, you know, you miss like family trips, you've missed, you know, I've missed a lot of important things because I've just been away and it's hard. It's it's really hard, but you know, we love this game. If the WNBA wants players to make it a priority, the people investing in the WNBA should do what they need to do to make it the most enticing place in the world for players. Instead, though, the league is choosing to penalize players for capitalizing on their skills and their passion for the game. The quality of the WNBA's product has never been better. But if the league forces veterans to choose between it and the money they make overseas, that could easily change. 
This episode of Spencer's was written and reported by Natalie Weiner and hosted by me, Jordan Liggins. Our editor is Isabel Jocelyn with production by Harry Krinsky, Alex Ward, Isabel, and me. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Yells, and Haley O'Shaughnessy. Hi, Jordan and Haley. This is John O calling from Seattle, uh, but originally from Atlanta. Uh, big fan of the show. Uh, in terms of the Hawks, which are my team, uh, the biggest thing is I just don't want them to trade Cam Reddish. He's, you know, a low floor, high ceiling guy, but after what he showed in the playoffs, I think that trading him would be a big mistake. Thanks, guys.